what what I love about it is the aging demographics, the demographics and the need of everyone needing healthcare, right? So if you're a medical office, if you're life science, if you're seniors housing, whatever it is, there's always demand, there's always need. Well, 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 hello and welcome to another episode of the MedChat podcast, a quote unquote spirited discussion on the business of healthcare. I am your host, Michael Bennett. We will be talking with all of the players from the C-suite to the capital providers and the physicians to the policymakers. We're going to try and deconstruct this $4 trillion, 20% of our GDP beast of an industry, and we'll pepper in a little fun and maybe a libation or two along the way. Please enjoy another episode of MedChat. Well, we've got a lot to cover, and Mr. Seitz is a busy man, so let's get started. Shane, welcome Thank you for having podcast. Me. I'm Thank so you. excited to be a MedChat podcast. Well, I'm I can't excited believe you here. made this choice to invite me, but you know, we all make bad choices. You were cheap, um, yep, free, free, actually. And I so brought the beer. You brought so. the beer. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so this is a spirited discussion on healthcare. It's uh, 8 a.m. on a Thursday. Yeah. <laughs> it is not. It is 4:43. <laughs> just in case anybody doesn't know that Shane's kidding. So what are we drinking today? We've got a Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, handcrafted ale. Yeah. From Chico, California, probably the best. Pale ale of pale ales. I agree. I yeah. agree. Love Sierra Nevada pale ale. Loved I mean, it forever. Loved it forever. This is like one of the original craft breweries. And they weren't even a craft brewery back then. I believe I discovered that the, I believe I discovered this as a freshman in high school, <laughs> which is why it took me seven years to get out of high school. Um, all right. So we're going to get into some things. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about your background, even though I read it in the intro. But let's get personal here. Okay. Books that you're reading right now, I do this on every podcast, or books that you have recently read that you would recommend? Well, you probably don't know this, but I can't read. So mm. there aren't any books that I've read. Actually, well, you're in healthcare real estate, so yeah. that would make sense. <laughs> Actually, to be honest, I don't really read books that often. I don't have a lot of time to read books. I find books fascinating, but mm. I don't really, I don't get into them as well as I probably should. Uh, I spend a lot of time reading articles. So I'm a big article reader. I love reading uh, analyst reports for oh. our competitors, believe okay. it or not. So if you find me reading something, it's probably that. Or it's something that I enjoy on the side, which is home renovation projects and learning about some some new thing. So there's a magazine I read all the time called Fine Home Building. All right. And then the other question that I ask is uh, under $100, a, a material piece of something that you've purchased in the last 30 days that has been awesome. Yeah. So... Again, because I'm cheap, or I'm sorry, frugal, mm-hmm. I don't spend a lot of things. But actually, these uh, these earbuds, oh, believe it or not. What so everybody buys everybody buys the uh, AirPods. Oh. These are some cheapo thing I got at Best Buy. They're like 30 bucks. Okay. Uh, they work just as well as AirPods. Yeah. Uh, and when you lose them, you're not upset that you lost $30 AirPods. I, I read your bio before we started here, but give us a, you know, straight from the horse's mouth about your experience in healthcare real estate, a real quick kind of rehash of what I just read. Yeah, sure. Uh, I fell into healthcare real estate. I didn't plan. I went to college thinking I was going to work in marketing, uh, fell into real estate, did residential low-income housing property management, uh, did Section 42, Section 8, uh, voucher-based, project-based in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which at the time was the most segregated city in the country, which I think it still might be. Um, And I grew up in a small town of 900 people in rural Wisconsin. So it was a fascinating industry to me and something new that I'd never experienced and real estate just kind of resonated that you could buy a piece of real estate, get a mortgage, have somebody pay rent, and that would pay your mortgage. Mm-hmm. And if you did it right, you'd make a little bit of a spread. If you built that up and you were kind of handy, 
you could actually make a living at that. So that's actually how I fell into real estate. My plan was to stay in that business to learn or really to learn a couple facets. I wanted to learn how to buy real estate, how to sell real estate, how to manage real estate, how to finance real estate and how to build real estate. And so I was, I was currently managing the real estate. And so I set out on a course uh, in my career to learn each of those other aspects. And so each job I took as my career progressed, taught me something like that. So my first job in healthcare real estate was actually with Hamas company. So prior to them having the Hamas fund, and they still have this company, Hamas company, it was a project management company focused on healthcare real estate, really helping hospitals and health systems grow the ambulatory network, uh, look at where their hospitals needed to be placed to capture that patient base. Um, and so just really learned healthcare before I learned real estate from that side. And that's what really propelled me into healthcare real estate. And from there, my career progressed into um, a guy that I met, uh, actually one of my two mentors, Mark Engstrom, who was the CIO at HTA before he retired, um, got me in and he hired me for my first acquisition job for a local group here in town called Bro Real Estate. Mm -hmm. And our partner, our capital partner was NHP, publicly traded read on Newport Beach, California. And uh, I did acquisitions for them for a couple of years. And then NHP came calling and said, hey, come be our acquisitions guy. So in 2008, became the acquisitions guy and we got bought in 2011 by Ventas. I left in 2018, got sucked right back in in 2019. And here I am at Ventas for my a lot of years. <laughs> so you started as a slumlord. You're yep. still a slumlord. Still a slumlord. And you're, and you're dated in your you know side job. Yep. You're a side hustle. But the Ventas is the complete opposite of a, of a slumlord. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about Ventas. And for those of the, those of our listeners who have been in a cave for the last 10 years. Um, but tell us a little bit about Ventas and then talk to us about like what you're doing there, how you're identifying properties in kind of a, in a broad brush uh, sort of way. Like what do you look to buy? Yep. Yeah. So Ventas publicly traded REIT S and P 500 company. Uh, we have grown tremendously since the inception of the company. We we're actually spun out of a company called Vencor, which was an operator of healthcare real estate. They spun out Ventas. Um, Vencor got into some trouble from an, from an operating standpoint, and they declared bankruptcy. Our CEO, Chairwoman Deb Kafaro at the time, said, hey, you know, we're not going to lose these properties. We're not going to lose anything. So she took some pretty drastic moves to, to shore up Ventas, pretty, pretty smart. Um, and what she did and came out of that and Vencore became out, it was Kindred Healthcare. Mm. So from that, we stayed in business, Ventas stayed in business. She said, we're never going to be in one asset type. We're never going to have one tenant. We're going to diversify. So that's what she went on doing. So she started to grow that company, grow out of just the Kindred side of the business, started buying seniors housing, started buying medical office buildings. We've evolved into buying hospitals. We've evolved into buying um, life science facilities. We've actually even created a core fund vehicle. So my role at Ventas is I'm a senior investment officer. Sounds exciting, probably more exciting what it, than what it actually is. But I'm tasked with going out and finding 40% um, of our business, uh, which is medical office, life science, hospitals. And we do some behavioral health as well. So as we look at those various assets, each one of those buckets is different than what we're looking for. So medical office, you've been in this space forever. In fact, we met each other. I was trying to think back. Was it 2013? Probably. 12 was, or 13, yeah. And it was a building in Kansas City, Kansas. St. Luke's was the tenant. Yep. I flew out there, looked at it. I think he sold it for a six and a quarter or six and a half cap. Something yeah. like that. Pay that all day right now. Well, pay maybe that, not right now, but. 
Yeah, it's still probably, probably there, after right? that. Yeah. yeah, it'd be a little campus tight. adjacent. I said campus it was adjacent. on campus. Yep, it was totally campus adjacent. It was uh, you did a great <laughs> job brokering that one. Um, but I think in the medical office side, that's what we're looking for. We want we want that relationship with that hospital and health system. So why healthcare real estate? I mean, that's your business. It's not like you're uh, a multifaceted where they're doing industrial and multifamily and self storage. You're focused on healthcare real estate and different continuum. So senior housing, behavioral health, medical office, life science. So it's all intertwined a little bit. Maybe life science is a little bit of the outlier of that that uh, family. But why healthcare real estate and why medical office buildings? Yeah. So I don't. But let's just say that you don't work for Ventas. You're an investor. Yeah. You know, give me that. Yeah. Give me that view. So I w- I would actually say that the life science side of the business actually fits in quite well with with the thesis as to why we invest in all those asset types. What what I love about it is the aging demographics, the demographics and the need of everyone needing healthcare, right? So if you're a medical office, if you're life science, if you're seniors housing, whatever it is, there's always demand, there's always need. People continue to unfortunately get sick. Um, drugs need to be created. Um, so that leads to the life science side, the mm-hmm. academic medical research center. We partner with a lot of health, universities and health systems to grow those innovation districts around the country. It spurs new ideas, uh, creates that innovation in the healthcare side. So what we love about healthcare and what I love about healthcare from an investor standpoint is there's always going to be demand. However awful that is, we're going to continue to age. We're going to continue to get sick. When you tear your ACL, you got to get it fixed, whether the market's good or the market's bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, your ACL doesn't care if the S&P 500 is up or if it's down. It's still got to be fixed. Yep. And, you know, one of the guests I had on my on another podcast, a uh, physician, we talked a little bit, we didn't get too deep into it, but about the headwinds that hospital systems are facing right now. I mean, at the end of the day, most of the the, the biggest driver of healthcare is the hospital systems. Obviously, you've got physician groups and that sort of thing, but uh, the bulk of our portfolio, I'm imagining the bulk of your portfolio is hospital systems and hospital system credit. And I think S&P in 2020 or 2019 had hospital systems and hospital facilities as the lowest risk. In 2020, it bumped up a little bit. In 2021, it came back down. And now in 2022, 2023, they're saying that they might be one of the higher risks for default because of FTEs and the lack of enough, uh, that's full-time employees, to go around doctor burnout, nurse burnout, pace, you know, labor cost, um, just everything that is that has kind of come from COVID and all of the pent-up issues that they had there are now coming to a, to the head. And so you look at hospital systems as the end, like if you follow the org chart up from who's paying your rent, you go to the hospital systems. If they're struggling, how does healthcare real estate still make sense? Even though the demand is there, you know, if the payers are struggling, if they're, if they're potentially going to struggle to pay their rent, which has never happened really, um, how do you underwrite that? Yeah, I think it's understanding the business. Right. If you want to be a healthcare real estate investor, it's not like investing in any other piece of real estate. Right. It's not like underwriting an office tenant or an office building in a downtown metro or a core district, central business district, which, by the way, is probably the the most challenged uh, sector of real estate right now. It's not underwriting retail and a uh, Five Guys or a or a uh, Chick Fil A that's got cars out the the holds a line all the way out. Mm-hmm. Right. Healthcare real estate is really about underwriting that user of that space. And it's, I always say it's operator first. So why, why do I want that health system if they're struggling? I want them because they're going to continue to provide healthcare. There's going to be that, that need, that demand. We circle back to what we originally talked about, right? Uh, people aren't getting younger. 
people aren't getting less sick, unfortunately, as they age. Um, and so as we think about that, it's a real positive for that growth side and for that demand side and for that need side. Uh, and I think that hospitals have notoriously not been the best and most efficiently operated businesses. I remember 20 years ago working on a project, uh, one of my first projects and talking to a hospital and health system, it was a health system actually, and saying, hey, you realize you own this piece of real estate? And they said, no, we own the one next door. I said, no, you actually own that one. <laughs> you did a swap a year and a half ago. They just don't pay attention. Yeah. Real estate's not important to them. Like, do you have it in writing? Uh, yeah, <laughs> we have like a million documents. Yeah. yeah. Look, I pulled them from the uh, county as well. So I think the the hospitals, that's not their focus is the real estate, right? Their focus is on providing that care. I think they haven't been the best business operating people in the past. I think that's why you've seen private equity come in. That's why we made a shift into hospitals. We acquired a health system. We bought mm -hmm. Art and Health and I think it was... 14 or 15, 2014 or 2015, we bought the entire system. And so we did, we took that whole system and we did a prop co-op go split. So we own all the real estate. And then we took the operating side of the business. We kept 10% of that operating business. We gave 30% to the senior leadership of that operating business. And we sold the other 60%. Great win. Private equity. Private equity. Yeah, private equity. They're doing a great job growing that business. We don't do that. We're not in that operating business. We understand it. But you bought the opco to get to the real code bought the opco to get to the propco gotta write that down that's a good <laughs> idea so i mean we've done that before in other sectors i mean we'll we'll continue to do that we look for operators and partners that we can grow if we've done that in seniors housing a handful of times as well so but to circle back to your question you know yeah it's a concern for mm -hmm. sure but i think that overall demand is still there I and think you're not you're also not buying hospital systems that are rural necessarily or critical access hospitals or de novo kind of for-profit necessarily. No. You have some for-profit in yep. your portfolio, but the not-for-profits, you're right, they're always going to provide healthcare. They're mission-based. They aren't in it to necessarily make money. Certainly they want to have money so they can do different things and, and provide more service and, and handle population health a lot better. But you, know, you, you were kind of touching on something, I think, or getting to something where your portfolio, and certainly we think our portfolio is centered around or rooted in hospital system relationships, but that also a specialty or subspecialties that are going to be there that are needed. So radiology, not something we really think highly of because you can outsource reading x-rays to Israel and have them send back their response in you know, a nanosecond yep. or AI is going to take that over, who knows. But there's a there's a, a specialty like orthopedics or cardiology where you have to go in or cancer treatment uh, on oncology. I mean, those are things that you cannot do for telemedicine. They're not things that you can outsource to other you know other countries. Those are things that you need space and they're going to pay the rent. And they're also high income producers for the hospital systems too. And yeah. so if they're driving revenue in a good way, then they're they're certainly going to continue to have those those facilities. Absolutely. That's absolutely what we're focused on. That's why I say operator first. What is what is the synergy? And so when we look at underwriting a building from the medical office standpoint, it's really looking at what hospital is there? What's their status? Like what's their market share? Where are they sitting in that market? Are they number one, number two? Do they have do they have the market share they need? Are they going to control that market? And as you know, as you get into the granular detail, you really got to understand what the specialty is, who those physicians are, how those physicians are aligned with that hospital or not. Are they employed? Are they not employed? Are they going to refer their physicians or their patients somewhere else? I, I always say that owning healthcare real estate is like a three-legged stool. You need the hospital to be there to drive the healthcare delivery.
You need the physicians to be there to actually see the patients. And if you're going to be a healthcare real estate owner, you need those two other components. You know, we've got the capital to own the real estate, to put the capital into the buildings, to keep them up to date, uh, keep the tenants happy, keep the patients happy. Um, and without one of those three stools, it doesn't work. If you don't have a hospital and you just have a bunch of physicians, at some point they're going to retire and go away, most likely, or they're going to potentially say, I'm going to go build my own building um, because they want to make money. Mm -hmm. And that's great. Healthcare real estate is there's money to be made. But yeah. that's why we align ourselves with the hospitals so we can help advance their mission, advance their goals in the markets that they serve. So talking about real estate that that uh, well, let's go back to capital, actually, before I get into the next question about real estate with hospital systems. So capital seems to be a concern for hospitals systems right now. Their days cash on hand are mm -hmm. down. They're you know, they're, they're paying their nurses more, they're, mm -hmm. they're potentially paying their doctors more, everything costs more inflation. Um, we have capital, you have capital, we have capital, hospital systems own 85% of the medical office buildings out there. So two schools of thought, one, sell your real estate, monetize it, do a sale lease back, free up a ton of money, like tomorrow, mm -hmm. you'd have a line out the door of, of investors like us that want to buy it. The other aspect is use our capital to expand. And so hub and spoke model, you've got the campus, uh, you want to keep people away from the campus unless it's super high acuity or they need to be in a hospital bed. You want them off campus. You want them in ambulatory facilities. You want ASCs, you want MOBs, but you want all that off because you make more money. And so what has been, hospitals are notoriously difficult to deal with. They just, there's a lot of red tape. There's a lot of people that have to make a decision. You've got, you know, a board, you've got, Everybody that has a different decision, everybody could be on the same page. Then one person wakes up on the wrong side of the bed and guess what? Your three-year project is now back to square one. So how do they get out of their own way? And how do they get to viewing us as a real benefit to them? Yeah, and I think, you know, in the 20 years I've been in this space, it's a cycle. And usually these, these hard times, capital markets, hard times is when hospitals realize that, oh, wow, maybe, maybe I don't have endless capital. Um, I think hospitals tend to think of their weighted average cost of capital as their cost of debt. I'm not that smart. You're smarter than I am, probably. You can do a weighted average cost of capital <laughs> calculation, right? It's some portion of equity, some portion of debt, the weighted average cost of those two. So it's not 100% debt. There's a finite amount of debt that you can take on as a system before you run into issues where you're going to get a, a downgrade in your credit rating. You know, So you have to think about your equity. I think that's a piece that a lot of hospital CFOs, as I've spoken to them over the years, they haven't really thought about it that way. And I think there's more progressive, there's certain systems that think that way, certain systems that don't think that way. And I think you see the systems that think that way more progressively tend to have better underlying cash flow in their operating systems. They can capture more market share. That's ultimately what they're trying to do is capture more patients. Um, and they, and they grow that business that way and understanding that I don't need to own that real estate. And I think one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that hotel you stay at, that Marriott or that Weston or Hilton or whatever, that's really? not owned by Marriott, Weston, Hilton, whomever. It's somebody like you and I that yeah. are real estate investors. We own that real estate because Marriott and Hilton know what they provide is a, a, a brand, an identity, mm -hmm. a feeling for that hospital. I'm sorry, for that uh, hotel stay. Right. Same thing for Walgreens, Sam's Club, any of those retail centers. They don't own that real estate. They, they don't want to have their money, their capital tied up in that. Uh, even when you look at IBM, right, they'll monetize all their real estate. Big, big corporations get that out, to your point exactly, so they can 
expand their market share and capture real revenue generation. So great. We make a, I think, I don't know where we're currently paying for our dividend. It's probably three, four or 5% somewhere around there. I should probably know that. Um, but that's not a huge return, but our investors want that kind of a return, steady eddy income. Mm-hmm. It's all they're looking for. And I'm not looking to monetize my real estate in the same way that Medcraft and, and your group is, um, which is not bad. It's just a different investor profile. Uh, you're adding value in a lot of different ways in, in the access that you provide to build new facilities, to renovate facilities. I'm looking for long-term investments that I can hold, partner with my health system, and provide a steady shareholder return for my stakeholders and grow that dividend over time. Yep. And so I think that's what we provide as healthcare real estate owners. Talk to me about, uh, let's back up a little bit just to give the folks a little idea. We talked a little structure there on hospital systems and their real estate, but talk to us about how you guys raise capital, how you buy deals, what you really look for. And then, um, you know, some of the headwinds right now with interest rates and, and sensitivity to that and how you're how you're making a go of it. Yeah. So as a publicly traded REIT, we typically think about our our capital stack as you know, we want to have as low, as little debt as we can. Tech like to be in that 30 to 40% debt range and then 67% equity. And so when we wish when we think about equity, it's issuing new shares into the market. So we can do that a couple of ways. We can uh, announce that we're going to sell a bunch of shares and have a big offering and sell shares into the market. Or we can do something which is called an ATM program. And so what we do is we actually issue shares into the market on a daily basis. Okay. As we feel that the stock price is at a good spot, we'll sell some shares into the market. So if you, Michael, are looking to buy some Ventas stock, you don't know if you're buying Ventas stock from me that I'm selling or Ventas stock from Joe uh, down the street that's selling, or if we're issuing new shares as Ventas into the market. And there's some real benefits to that. It helps reduce the dilution of those shares going into the market. And if you have a rising tide, it doesn't hurt the shareholder as well. So it's really beneficial for everybody. Um, that's how we raise our, our equity. Our debt is typically not uh, secure debt, meaning that we're not borrowing money on one piece of real estate, which I think you're probably looking mm-hmm. at getting a loan for one piece of real estate. We're going to issue bond debt. So just like Apple issues bonds or Tesla issues bonds or somebody like that, we're doing the same thing. We're investment grade rated company. So when we go to issue our bonds, we go out to the market make an announcement, sell those bonds, sell yep. off pretty quickly. Um, as with most things, you already know the answer. You already know the outcome before you go. So we know what where they're going to trade right. before they go it's out. It's not a hope and a prayer. It's not a hope and a prayer. Um, and then the other unique thing that we've done is we've created a core fund vehicle. So we have a perpetual life fund vehicle that we created in 2020 that we announced. It's actually part of the reason I came back to Ventas in 2019. Uh, we've raised capital from institutional investors around the country and around and internationally as well. We don't actually divulge who they are. Some of those names are out there, but Ventas is 20% of that capital and the 80, other 80% is raised by other investors, institutional investors. So we take that core fund vehicle and we go buy individual assets. We've done quite a few, several billion dollars uh, in, that, in that fund vehicle. Uh, and we continue to look to grow that. We bought a little uh, small MOB last late last year uh, in that fund vehicle. And so in that fund vehicle, we will put individual securitized debt on an asset, but we'll do it at a 40% lever. Yep. Uh, whereas I think a typical investor is usually looking to do 60 to 75% somewhere in there. Uh, leverage is good for them. Uh, my investors and my partners aren't actually looking for that big pop. They just want steady cash flow, yep. similar to what we provide in the REIT, in our traditional Ventus REIT. Um, before we guess the next question, I think we're both yep. ready for number two. Are we doing? We're all taking Ubers, so. 
I think we'll do an amber ale. Oh, okay. We'll switch it up. A little Let's 90 shilling, a little Colorado beer for you. My wedding ring uh, serving its purpose. Talk a little bit. You touched on it briefly in your quick uh, recap of the bio. Life science, medical office building, senior housing, behavioral health, you said. So behavioral health seems to me to be one of the missing links in the continuum right now of care. So you've got um, you've got a, a lot of issues from COVID with mental health, substance abuse, uh, oh, we're facing geriatric. It, we're facing it here in Denver. Yeah. Mental health, it's, it's not a homelessness crisis. It's a mental health crisis. And, you know, we've looked at behavioral health. There's a lot of de novo new operators out there. There's not a lot of credit. There's some hospital buy-in, but it's kind of like on the fringe. Uh, everybody, I think, that is on our side, the investor side of things, looks at that and goes, well, where are reimbursements going to go? Are they going to disappear? Because then my building and my rent is going to disappear. And so how does that come into the day-to-day -day conversation? Because it seems to me like it is a a very, very needed part of the continuum and hospital systems are kind of begging for it because they're dealing with ER overflow and then where do we put patients and shuffling beds and long-term acute care versus uh, transitional care, shuffling people out of there or like just there, there's a lot of issues with it if they don't have somebody to send to a behavioral health or mental health or substance abuse facility. And so what's your take on it? Where do you see the opportunity uh, without giving away all your trade secrets, but you know, give us a little thirty thousand foot view from from your perspective. Yeah, I think you know one thing that you you are fully aware of is my wife uh, is an ER doctor, or she was. By She's... the way, let me I have to interject here. So Shane has been dating his wife for <laughs> now wife for I don't know how, thirteen and thirteen plus some years. years, and never was never going to get married. Gave me a litany of reasons why they weren't going to get married. All economic for the most part. And then I get a Christmas card from him <laughs> and I save all my Christmas cards that I get from everybody. I have a box. Which full is of fascinating, them. by the way, when I heard this a couple of weeks ago, I was blown away. Yes, I think I it's an years awesome and idea. years of them. And so I'm reading through it and I start to look at the small print and it, I can't remember exactly what it said, but it was like, we're, we got married or something like yeah. that. And, and I was like, what a genius way to send out your wedding announcement. One, I didn't have to get him a present. <laughs> That's correct. And you don't then any presents. two, it was just really cool. So congrats on that. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, the the trick was is I think we had four photos on the back. We had one of us, we had one of us on the top, and then we had a picture of us in front of the Eiffel Tower. We had a picture of our rings. Then we had a picture of us uh, kissing under the Eiffel Tower. And so you kind of had to put it together. The best part about this is is. Lots of our friends didn't even catch it. So you called me and then you sent me a video, uh, which was pretty great. So, well, congrats on that. So, anyways, back to All behavioral right. healthcare. So, I think you're absolutely right. And I think taking a step back to when we were talking about, you know, the pressures on hospitals and health systems, you know, COVID really changed a lot of things. You know, my wife uh, had always kind of planned to step away at this point in her career, but she was, she was thinking she was going to stick around a little longer. COVID really accelerated that for her. A uh, good friend of mine's a critical care pulmonologist. Uh, that it was trying for him, you know, and it was it wasn't about it was it was funny how it became a political thing, and how the number of times that the physicians would hear, "You're just hiding this. This isn't real." You know, my friend Madison would be talking to a family member, and they'd be like, "It's not COVID. That's not a real thing." And he's like, "I'm telling you, they're dying right now because of this, and we're doing everything we can." So that really took a big toll on a lot of the healthcare workers. Uh, people lost their sense of 
respect uh, in a lot of ways, and it's unfortunate. And it caused a lot of pressure on hospitals and physicians. And it also caused a lot of problems for behavioral health care as well, right? It took a big stress for a lot of people to be home and not interact for a year. Yeah. Um, you know, people that were fortunate enough to be able to get out or go to places where they could be outside during that period was a lot better, but not everybody had that opportunity, that, that uh, chance. So I do agree behavioral health care is very important. I think the behavioral health care market, historically, the challenge has been reimbursement. Yep. Um, you know, I've looked at that a handful of times in my career. Each time we considered it, uh, reimbursements were there, and then reimbursements would go away. And I really think the Affordable Care Act uh, that's in place now, that came into, came into place, really makes that difference and solidifies uh, that to stick around, and that reimbursement is going to be there for the long term. I think it's interesting that, you know, the Affordable Care Act has been politicized and talked about how it's, you know, whatever, uh, you know, what's good and bad about it. Um, but I think what we've what we've learned that when the last president was in power and the Republicans had control of of the House and the Senate, they could change that. And when they started talking to their constituents, people actually wanted to have access to primary care, that you can go see a doctor once a year. Yeah. That um, a lot of people don't remember this, but uh, when you were prior to the Affordable Care Act, if you got pregnant and you didn't have the right insurance, that was a pre-existing condition and it wasn't covered by your insurance. You know, behavioral health care was added. You couldn't max out on how much money could be spent to save your life. Mm -hmm. You couldn't have your insurance taken away from you. You can't have your insurance taken away from you anymore. Before, you couldn't even be insured. Everyone gets the opportunity to be insured. Now, there's a greater debate in that and who deserves and what health care means to everybody. But at, at this point, the great news is, is behavioral health, there's a need and there's reimbursement. So yeah. that's wonderful. The challenge on behavioral health is, is when you say behavioral health, it means a lot of different mm -hmm. things. It's not as simple as a medical office building or, uh, you know, a senior's housing facility. Right. You know what those are. Defining what so, behavioral health care is, is a little unknown. Right. You know, we've done some deals with uh, eating recovery centers. who's located here in Colorado, mm -hmm. ERC. Deal I tried to buy and you yep. snuck, in for and it. Yep. snuck in and took out and yep. took it. Uh, we continue to talk to them about ways to grow their portfolio. We really like what they're providing for care. Uh, we think they have a great model. Uh, but that's not reimbursement-based. It is reimbursed. Oh, I thought oh, it was private pay. It is private pay. I'm sorry. Okay. But it's commercial. It's insurance. Okay. It's a, The majority of their business is insurance uh, reimbursed care. So not a lot of uh, government reimbursement. Uh, and there's a need for that. And the mental health side and the drug and alcohol piece is really understanding how to provide that care the right way. The challenge for us as real estate investors is there's two big operators of those facilities, and they like to own their own real estate. Acadia. One's a publicly, they're yeah. both publicly traded yeah. companies, Acadia and UHS. Yeah. And so uh, what happens is, is these new organizations form. Uh, when they get to a certain size, Acadia comes in, buys the operations on the real estate. So it's hard to really unlock that value. And to your point, hospitals would love to find a way to kind of shift that delivery of care. And there's an operator out there right now, uh, Kindred, which has been renamed. Uh, is it, uh, I always forget the name of it. They're now starting to get into the behavioral health business. And they're doing similar to what they did in the, in the earth business, independent rehab hospital business, where they're partnering with hospitals taking that burden out of the hospital setting, providing yeah. a better environment to, to treat those patients and have a better outcome. Well, I mean, behavioral, I don't want to get too deep into it, but it is multifaceted. So it's it's psychiatric care. 
Yeah. It's emergency psychiatric yep. care. It's geriatric psychiatric mm-hmm. care. It's it's adolescent psychiatric care. It's it's substance abuse. It's um, you know, all, a mm-hmm. lot of different things, right? Yep. Probably three other ones that I'm not really thinking about right now. And then, you know, so you've got to have and then it's overnight stays, mm-hmm. right? And there's it's long-term stays, long-term short-term stays. stays. Yes. And so there's there's just it's a very complicated issue. It's needed. You know, how they're going to figure it out, they will. I don't I don't know when or when or when or where, but the, they will figure it out. The other issue that they're facing, too, is NIMBY, right? Mm-hmm. It's like nobody really wants to have one of those facilities. Everybody says, I really like it, but nobody nobody really wants it yeah. um, in their backyard. And so there's a lot of challenges there. But, you know, as real estate investors and developers, we're always looking for ways to get ahead of the curve or to find that next big thing, right? You know, Montecito, I'll give them credit. They were buying physician buildings years and years ago when everybody was just, I want camp on campus or maybe just off campus, like next to campus. Yeah. They were like, screw it. We'll go in the middle of Indianapolis mm-hmm. and there's not a hospital within three miles and it's a big physician group. We're going to buy that building. Mm-hmm. And they've, they've done a great job at it. And now everybody's kind of doing that. Right. Yeah. We're trying to figure out how to get yield and how to get product. Well, it's amazing. You, you bring up a great point. Uh, you, I would have never looked at, and most most big investors would have never looked at a deal less than $15, $25 million. And if you went below that threshold, you would get a little increase in the yield, right? So you'd, you know, back in the day, if you're buying something at $25 million, it's six and a half. And if you were buying a small $10 million deal, you might pay a seven, seven and a quarter. So you got a little bit of a 50 to 75 basis point spread. And you could, there was an aggregation strategy to create value. The number of deals I see that are $8 million, which is not something I typically chase unless it's the right fit with the right partner for me, uh, they're pricing the exact same way as a big deal. There's a whole subset of investors, which I know you know this, that have they're, they're in their pitch, they say, we're not competing with the REITs. We're buying right. everything the REITs won't buy. Right. Right. And so it's that five to like $15 million deal. Yep. But now, of course, you know, if yeah. it makes sense, you'll you'll do it. Yeah. Well, and I think I think it's it's also the the size you are dictates kind of what you should be chasing and how you should be chasing it and how you want to grow. I think we can be a lot more focused on where we want to grow. We don't have to grow for the sake of growing. We want to do smart growth, uh, which as an investor is what I would want to hear. Right. You're not just buying stuff because you want to buy stuff. Uh, there's plenty of examples where that doesn't work. Uh, there's plenty of examples where it has worked in the past. Uh, and I think right, because it, you look at every deal and they're like, this is a lifetime hold, whether mm-hmm. it's not going to be or not, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's to be determined. But every deal that you buy, you go, this is going in our portfolio. This is going to contribute to our, you know, FFNO. And we got to own this long term. We got to look at this as, you know, a 20 year hold. Exactly. And that's why it's operator first. How can I help them grow? How can I help make them? How can I help them do their job better and provide care in the market better? That's how I think about are investing. And when we look at portfolios, that's what I'm looking for. How does this, how does this nest into our existing portfolio? Yep. So you have a little bit of experience, uh, and maybe not directly, but with our mm-hmm. hospital system, mm-hmm. challenges that they're facing. But this is something I, I try and ask with uh, hopefully a series of these podcasts that we do kind of centered around some of the same questions, like what's working in in healthcare right now and maybe what's not working. You know, I had a physician on last week as a surgeon and he had some really good insights as to what he thought was working and wasn't, what wasn't working. Just 
you, know, you and I are just real estate guys, so yep. we don't we don't we're probably the, the lowest rung on the. the <laughs> we total, are a hundred percent the lowest rung in healthcare, but we have eyes, and mm-hmm. you know we've had our own experiences. And your wife is a physician, and so, what do you think? I I would I would say what's working is the Affordable Care Act. I think that's been phenomenal to to allow people to have access to healthcare. That's been huge to to be able to have. A child to get pregnant and not get dinged with a pre-existing condition, and there's mm-hmm. young people don't even remember that. You know, they're like, what do you mean that was a pre-existing condition? What you, how could pre-existing conditions? I just, you know, we're pregnant now. But those little nuances in that in that bill really helped the delivery of healthcare in this country, and really gave you know brought light to the mental healthcare crisis that we that we have, and give it an opportunity to to fix it. Yep. Now, fixing the mental healthcare crisis is a totally different thing, and. I'm not smart enough to tell you how to do that. I will say our partner ERC has started to to do some things in the mood behavioral side. They have a side business where they've really they've got kind of on the eating recovery side, they've figured out kind of how to fix that problem. They're trying to figure out how to do that with other mood-based behaviors. So it's pretty exciting um, what they're doing. So I think that's pretty fascinating, pretty interesting. From a hospital standpoint, I think what's what's going well is hospital systems continue to consolidate. I think there's probably an oversupply of beds, although you can argue that COVID proved that we didn't have enough beds, but that wasn't something that shocked the system. Uh, it wasn't supposed to happen that way. The, the, the evolution to ambulatory care and to more outpatient care is only, is only more beneficial for us as users of healthcare. Uh, and I think we have to become consumers of healthcare more so than users. Uh, yeah. I think the back in the day when probably when you and I first had our health insurance, it was 25 bucks. You went to the ER, right? Now it's 250 bucks. So do I really want to go to the ER? Yeah. And I think that's probably good. Uh, it makes us really realize what it is. I think that there's healthcare is, is, is a commodity in a lot of ways. It is what it is, what it is, but we should have some decision on where I want to spend the money and more access or more understanding of what things cost and why they cost that way. You know, do I want to get my ACL done over here, or over there? You know, physicians, I'm not cutting on physicians, but they're out to make a profit. So if they're not affiliated with a hospital or health system, they may push you to one facility versus another because they get better reimbursements. Right. Um, and, you know, you talk about the, we didn't talk about this, but, you know, the reimbursements of uh, in-network versus out-of-network, out that was a big deal back in the day. Mm-hmm. And people went out of business because they try yes. to do the out-of-network model. Uh, we have a personal Entire hospital system. Entire hospital system. Yeah. We have a personal friend who's an orthopedic spine surgeon that was doing that. And they, uh, the health insurance company said, hey, if you do out-of-network, we're not going to pay you. Sue us. You know, And so that, that kind of solved itself. So I'm encouraged by that, that hospitals do have control of that. I think it is a good thing. I think this, this difficult time for hospitals can only make them be better business operators. Uh, you know, the supply chain issues were huge for PPE. They were huge for getting certain drugs, for really providing that care. Uh, the challenge that the hospitals have faced is they've increased labor costs. You know, they were losing nurses to traveling nurses. If you were a nurse working full-time making $70,000 a year, somebody came along and said, hey, if you want to move around, we'll pay you three times that amount. Right. And then guess what happened to the nurses that didn't travel where the traveling nurse came in and was like, oh, I'll take you to lunch today because I'm making three times. I'm making three times. Guess what? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's changed too because that traveling nurse doesn't get a contract anymore. That 30-day contract that 
they thought would go in perpetuity ended. Yep. And so there was real correction. But the problem was the hospital said, we got to raise, we got to raise our wages. So they did thinking that they would then scale wages back. We got to raise your wages. But, you know, the physician I had on last week, um, he's saying his reimbursements have gone down almost every single year. Yeah. So, and that's a whole nother can of worms, but he's like, I think 50% of my income in the next couple of years is going to come from non hospital related mm-hmm. ventures, like Absolutely. investments and yep. real estate and creating a w- new widget for a knee implant or something along those lines, which is great because it's maybe it's spurring new yep. innovation, but you know, hospitals are in a really precarious situation because they've got a 250,000 nurse deficiency right now, 250,000 nurse positions have gone unfilled in the U.S. Uh, physicians are getting older. Physicians that are coming out of college, you know, th- th- they're, that's actually probably good for hospital systems because they don't want, those guys don't want to, those, those people don't want to take on debt and so they'll just work for a system. But, you know, everything is cyclical in this business from a employed physician to a to an mm-hmm. independent physician and they were employed now they're independent mm-hmm. and they get sick of being independent because they're fighting with all the new coding and then they say screw it we've got to hire 10 people to, to do our codes just to get paid and then we don't get paid nearly as much as we should so let's go back and work private equity is coming in the mix uh, which leads me to my next question about uh, private equity which uh, not so much on the hospital side of things although you dealt with it with Arden but physician groups mm-hmm. and so you know, I don't know if you have a take on it, but it seems to be pervasive in, yeah. our, in our business that yeah. private equity is just everywhere. It's, yeah. it's, I mean, I call a lot of physicians to buy their buildings. They probably get five calls from real estate guys a week. They probably get 30 calls from private yeah. equity guys. Yeah. My wife's group was bought by a private equity group. Uh, that private equity group then sold it and took on a bunch of debt. And those physicians didn't even understand what just happened. Nope. They agreed to it. First time around wasn't such a bad deal. Second time around was a terrible deal. So we we sold our shares. We sold our shares. We fought tooth and nail to sell those shares um, just because, you know, private equity is in there to make money. Uh, I think private equity is good. It can spur some change. It can spur better businesses or business to be run better, to be more efficient in the way they do it. But at the end of the day, you're providing care. It's not a it's not a widget business. Right. Uh, one, you know, you can have the same issue with two different patients, but it's two different procedures, two different ways of handling that, that problem. It's not like stamping out a hood on a car. You know, that's the same hood every single time. That's what private equity wants. They want efficiency. Mm-hmm. That's not the way delivery of healthcare works. Unfortunately, I don't actually think it's all that great. Now, Ardent is private equity backed, but I think it's a little different. They are looking to provide better care. They're growing their ambulatory uh, strategy much more than they have. They've really been kind of focused on the on the main hospital, uh, and they're looking at growing that ambulatory strategy. And I think that's where you should go, as we talked about earlier. I mean, if I'm a hospital system, and I'm not, I'm not smart enough to run a hospital, but that's where I'd be looking to go. I'd really be looking at how do I get HOPD on every every off campus site? Yeah. Uh, how do I? What do I have to pay? How can I do it to get those reimbursements up? Um, I'm kind of so-so on private equity, to be quite honest. Uh, I'll probably get chastised for that statement, but there's good pieces to it. I think there's some bad pieces too. In the long run, we'll see how it plays out. When you look at private equity, if you think you're just going to go in and aggregate and then sell and make money, maybe you will, maybe you won't. But the business of healthcare is taking care of patients, as you said, and providing that healthcare and really being good at what you do, Yep. Uh, not just 
I slam it all together and the, then sell the challenge. The, the challenge is if you're going to be a private equity shop, most times you're going to do an LB, you're going for leverage, right? You're going to buy something at a two time, four time multiple. You're going to get that, aggregate it. You're going to get enough cash flow, top line cash flow that you can then go to a bank and go raise debt. And you're going to lever the crap out of that LBO. thing. Yeah. You're going to lever it up. And then you're going to go, not my problem when you go sell it or you go public and you sell it at 12 times. And now, boof, we can't make those debt payments. And then we're, and then we're going to BK at some point, potentially. Not saying that happens every time, but that does occur at times with, with private equity. And then what happens when that happens when you have a bunch of physicians that are providing, that are staffing all the ERs, that are staffing all the radiology, staffing all the pick your specialty that mm-hmm. they've acquired over the time. And now they're bankrupt. They don't exist. They yeah. just fired everybody or they didn't fire everybody, but every doctor was like, I'm not getting paid. I didn't get my paycheck. Now what am I going to do? They're not going to show up. If they're not getting paid. Now you got a real health crisis. Well, you know, as far as getting a little into the weeds on the underwriting for us real estate folks, when we look at a building and it's an orthopedic group and they're independent and they're not big enough to be a category killer, but they're, you know, big, still big. Yep. They're a target for private equity, Absolutely. especially if you look at some of the ages of the doctors. I mean, we're, we're getting kind of deep into that. And we're like, well, this is a great group now, but what are they going to be when they get bought by private equity? Yeah. And so that changes things, right? And well, and it circles back to something you said earlier, which is there is, I think you were going towards this, the generational shift of the way doctors want to provide care. If you talk to somebody that's 60 years old, they were a mom and pop provider, Somebody that's 50 came up in a group setting in the 40s. They kind of were in that group setting. Now they're looking at those guys are kind of young and gunning for a, a big LBO for a buyout, right? The 30-year-olds that are just coming out to provide medicine, which, by the way, they are all 30 because it takes that long to become a doctor. Those, those physicians want to come out and they want to work four days a week. They want to work. They want to be able to go ski on Friday. Or they want to ski on Monday. Mm-hmm. Or they want to have two days off in the middle or something. They don't want to work. They want Shane's lifestyle. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I like my lifestyle. Yeah. Um, but they they don't want that same thing that the 60-year-old did, which he, he or she built that business. The 50-year-old, the 40-year-old, they built that business. It's a different level of investment into their career. And they're fine making, they all think, I mean, everybody at 20 and 30, we all thought this, you and I both, we're all worth a million dollars at that point. We're not, but we all think we're worth a million dollars at that point. Um, and they just want to clip their coupon do their shifts and go home. Right. Doesn't then they fit. get older. Exactly. And, and then they're looking for... That's what I was talking about, the cycle of employed yeah. versus independent no, versus totally. employed versus independent. And we've seen that in the 20 years I've I've been in, and it comes to reimbursements, how they get reimbursed. And you talk about the cardiology component. I remember when infusion centers were, this is probably the 2005, 2006 timeframe where cancer infusion was owned by hospitals and then there was some reimbursement shift that every physician was now starting an infusion center. Four years later, every hospital was buying those things up because the reimbursement went away. So CMS always has a good, always does a good job. Not always, lots of time, figures out where the fat is and trims that fat. Well, this has been great. I'm going to be cautious every time because I know you're getting taken out to a dinner tonight. I hope so. Summarizing, you know, healthcare, real estate, great place to be in. For those that are in healthcare real estate listening to this, you'll you'll know exactly what we're talking about. Stickiness of the tenant, the fact that it's mission-based uh, for most of the providers. They, they're they there to provide healthcare. They yep. want to provide healthcare. 
it's um, it's also uh, competitive, and you know they've got issues that they're facing right now. But if you kind of kind of zoom out from thirty thousand feet, the challenges that they're facing are real. But they're going to get through them. And healthcare real estate is really a good place to be if you're investing in a publicly traded company like yourself or a REIT like Ventas, where you want a dividend and you got great great uh, asset backed basically securities yep. uh, or Medcraft where yep. we're developing and, and acquiring assets. I mean, medical office seems to be bubbling to the surface. Um, and then, you know, when I got into business, it was, I think $4 billion, maybe $5 billion were, in transactions. 2012? 2010, I think 10, I okay. really got into it. And now there's 25 billion in transactions last year. I mean, that's a yep. huge jump. A little, and, little skewed with the public market deal. But correct. still, right, right, it's right. still a big, Big but there's of always one of those big deals every year yeah. that yeah. kind of skews it. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that's a 5X from when yeah. I started. And so we don't really even have that many institutional investors outside no. of funds. We don't have, we have a couple groups like KKR that came in last year and did a recap. You know, Blackstone's not really in the space. Hasn't done it yet. Um, Carlisle's in in a very big way. JP Morgan's in a, in a or Morgan Stanley, I'm sorry, is in, in, in a bigger way. But there's a whole host of private equity groups uh, and aggregators that are not in our space yet. And when For that sure. happens, yeah, well, we'll see. And I think it's interesting. We talked about office buildings. Well, that's, I'm glad you brought up office buildings. Well, because carry on with your thought, but yeah, I, have, I, have well, I mean, for you. look to your point too. I, when I started in 01 in healthcare real estate, I remember a portfolio transacted and it went for a, I was like a 9.5 cap. I was so young. I didn't understand what that meant. I didn't understand why everybody was freaking out. So the first time something went sub, sub double digit, how could anybody make that work? And it was a deal that my current partner PMB bought way back in the day. Health system was monetizing the real estate. And I was at Hamas company and all the older guys were like, how does this work? They can't work. You know, it's crazy. PMB then, overpaying for deals since 2001. <laughs> they don't even, even buy stuff. So, <laughs> um, so the, that was interesting to see that. And then you watch the evolution in 04, 05, I started doing acquisitions. And I think back to that time, it was a 10 cap when I started. It was probably a seven and a half, eight cap is where I was buying things in 04, 05. Public money had just started. Ventas had bought a few assets. NHP, the read I was with, had bought a few assets. That's, what, that's why they brought me in in 08 to do it directly. Uh, and then 08 happened, right? And... What happened, I, I just told the story, uh, I was getting my first bonus and the guy called me up and he said, hey, you know, we're going to do this, this, this. And he goes, you're quiet. What's going on? I said, I can't believe you're not firing me. <laughs> it's 08. You know, it's 09. It's early 09. I'm like, the world is done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Twiddling my thumbs going, what am we going to do here? Yeah. Sitting at home, working from home, but working from home in a mushroom, you know, yeah. being fed shit, kept in the dark, not knowing what's going on. He goes, we're going to pay your full bonus. I'm like, I was getting fired. He goes, no. He's like, we've paid our dividend. All of our tenants are paying. You know, everything is good in the company. The capital markets are a different story. You know, we're going to continue to grow. We're going to continue to do what we need to do. And that then we saw Harrison Street enter. We saw some other bigger names enter into the space. That grew it through 1415. And we saw some more. And Remedy started recapping their real estate. That really mm -hmm. brought new investors yep. in. Um and now with 2020 COVID, we saw more capital come in. And now I think with the evolution of 
office buildings being struggling. You know, we've now seen some pretty big defaults on some pretty big assets uh, here recently that have just been announced. That's going to shift those investors that were doing office. Medical office is now a real sector, which yeah. is part of office in a lot of those funds. That money's going to shift over somewhere. It's going to come here. And I'm never one to say, I hate cap rate compression because it, it's happened my entire career, but there's more capital that's going to come into our space. And there's a lot of buyers that aren't going to understand what they're buying yep. or what's good and bad about it. And that's okay. I'm not a buyer of that stuff. I'm happy to lose deals. You know, I, I just said this in another meeting. In my career, 20 years of buying real estate, acquired billions of dollars of real estate, the best deals I've done are the ones I haven't done. My thesis, we're raising fund two right now. We're talking to institutional investors. And one of the questions is, you know, what's the exit strategy? And I said, well, there's a lot of investors that are getting into the space now. They're starting to learn about it. They're not in it yet, but they're going to be. And this happened with the groups that are, I won't mention names, but there's a couple of private equity groups that are in our space in a big way now, but it took them three, four years mm -hmm. of learning it to get in the space. I think that that learning curve will be, uh, will be expedited with some of these newer groups because of the what you said about them coming out of office and needing to put it into something. And while it's office with just the word medical in front of it. Now, they may make some mistakes. I hope they go with operators like ourselves or, yeah. or you, people that know what they're doing and groups that know what they're doing. But um, I said, I said, listen, when we go to recap this portfolio, there's a whole host of people that are the usual suspects that are in it right now, but there'll be 10, 15 other groups ready to recap our portfolio by the yep. time we go out and take this. So can I bank on that? Is that an anecdotal? Yes, but that is the trend that has happened over the last few years. And I think that if you really look at the, the, the macro and the micro, it, that's, that's a very I just, Easy to defend thesis. I don't disagree. I just fought for a deal recently in my investment committee where we were ho humming about the about the yield. Too tight, not worth it. And I said, look, if we've learned anything about medical, it was a medical office deal. If we learned anything about medical office, that ACL still needs to be repaired. So as long as we can raise the capital today and not be dilutive on what we're doing and we make money on it, we should buy. Mm -hmm. Is it tiny? Is it a tighter spread? Maybe. But is it a good long-term investment with a health system for 15 years and good growth? And on a campus that's a that's a booming campus where we have opportunities to buy more buildings, we should take that risk. And we did. I'm glad our I'm glad our group decided to do it. It was the right deal to do. And I think it'll turn out to be really good because it's not going anywhere. Back to the start of this thing, healthcare, delivery of healthcare is not going anywhere, unfortunately. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you yeah. for your insights. Yeah. Thank you for your I can't your believe you chose candor. me. I can't believe you chose me as number two. Eh, I mean, I'm a little upset that I'm even on the list. Well, but you know I mean we're just starting. We have four choices. We have zero followers at this point. So <laughs> maybe after this podcast it'll it'll skyrocket it. to doubt one. It. I doubt it. Um well, uh good to see you. Yeah, Thanks for everything. Good to see you as well. Thanks so All much right. for having me on. You got it. All All right. See ya.